Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is John. I don't belong here, except I do in a way because uh, we are a connectional church. This is one of the reasons I really relish the, the opportunities to preach from time to time at other churches and for other pastors to visit my own. And that is as a reminder, a very tangible reminder that we are connected and connectional. We're not isolated. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ is not just a group of individuals um, saved by faith and through grace, although we certainly are that, but we're also um, a part of the communion of the saints. And that's true of us as individuals, it's true of us as churches, and so I very much um, enjoy and appreciate and I think we're all edified by the opportunity to connect in meaningful ways. And so I'm thankful that Kyle is at Trinity this morning, thankful for the welcome I've received here. And I'm going to encourage you all to um, follow along as I read to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. This is a, <clears throat> this is a passage that, that we reflected on on Ascension Sunday, uh, three or four weeks ago at Trinity. But as I was mentioning to the worship team this morning, it's also very appropriate, I think you'll see why in a minute, very appropriate for uh, the early weeks of ordinary time, that... Uh, that long slog through the church year where we don't have really any particular um, points of, you know, kind of high liturgical days, but we simply are encouraged by the church calendar itself to live the life that is before us. And I'm going to try to draw that connection for you all, but for now, um, here is St. Paul the Apostle from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, he says, I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, be with us this morning by your powerful Holy Spirit, we pray, and open our hearts and minds so that we can receive um, the life-changing gospel of Jesus through the powerful word um, and the work of your spirit. Lord, we're, a lot of us are here for, for all kinds of reasons and have a lot of stuff going on in our hearts and minds. And I pray that you'd focus our attention and, and God, tear down the barriers that would, that would inhibit us from hearing and being changed by your word this morning. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. After George Washington was elected as our nation's first president, he went on an interesting journey. Of course, um, he had to get from his home in Mount Vernon up to New York, which was the, the capital at the time. And, you know, he couldn't just hop on an airplane or even, you know, get in his car and, and, and drive on the 95 kind of up the East Coast. And so, of course, he had to make a long journey that took him weeks and weeks, 
and he set about to, to do that to get to New York in time for the first inauguration, but as he did, very quickly, at every stop along the way, people began to throng to see him. They wanted to, to see their newly elected president, and they began to celebrate him, and it seems that um, every city was trying to outdo the last in these kind of high-concept um, you know, shows of, of pomp and celebration. So just 10 miles into his journey, he was waylaid for a big banquet. By the time he made it to Philadelphia, he was given a white horse to ride into the city as 20,000 people looked on and church bells rang. New Jersey, uh, the, the city fathers had elected an, a, a giant floral archway and 13 young girls dressed in white scattered petals at his feet as a choir in the background sang of his exploits. By the time he made it to New York, he was met with a newly constructed barge that had an awning and curtains to protect him from the elements, steered by 13 oarsmen to bring him into the city, and boats beside the barge carried musicians and, and singers who serenaded him as he made it into the city. Imagine being there. Imagine that feeling. Imagine being a citizen of the new country who has just won independence and who has just elected a democratically elected leader. Imagine the feeling. Imagine catching a glimpse of your victorious leader traveling to the seats of power. What would you feel? What would you think? Joy probably, celebration, respect, honor, awe, yes, all of those things, but also a sense of hope, a sense of, of a new beginning, a sense of potential. The war is over. Our freedom is won. Now, to the work of building something beautiful. Well, I'll give you that illustration because I think that's a great picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the ascension that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 4. He gives the image of a victorious leader, triumphant over his enemies. In verse 8, um, he says this, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is the image that would have been very recognizable at the time of a conquering general returning to his city in victory. A general who had won a great battle against dangerous enemies. What the generals would do is they would literally bring their conquered foes in, um, in a parade behind them, in train behind them, displaying them for everybody to see, it literally kind of putting them forth publicly in their shame to demonstrate and to show that they have been defeated. They've been beaten. Paul says that's what Jesus did when he ascended to heaven. Um, and the quotation that he uses, you may recognize it, it appeared in our liturgy earlier in the Old Testament reading from Psalm 68. He ascended on high. He led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Therefore, oh, by the way, I I take a little solace from this passage that I think Paul wasn't sure of the reference because he, he says, therefore, it says, right? Like, he, he knows it's there. It is Psalm 68. Um, 
And in Psalm 68, the psalmist, David, uses the same imagery uh, to refer to the Exodus, that, um, that, that, that time in the history of God's people when God defeated the enemies of his people and rescued them from cruel slavery, delivered them to their inheritance, and then took his place on Mount Sinai as their rightful king. Again, a people freed, brought to their inheritance, constituted as a people, and their king ascending to the rightful place of rule over them. And what Paul is saying here by making this allusion in Ephesians 4 to Psalm 68 is that when Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven, he accomplished a new and greater exodus. That in his life and death on the cross, he fought and won the war against evil. That in his suffering of injustice at the hands of corrupt religious and governmental systems, in the pain that he endured and the torture, in the emotional agony and shame of humiliation, in the loneliness and sorrow and isolation when his friends and his family deserted him and abandoned him, and in his rejection by God and his death on the cross, he did the same thing. Do you see? He bore the penalty for our sin, but he brought us out of the of the. Of the the slavery to sin, the bondage to sin that we were in and constituted us as a people and and purchased our forgiveness, yes, but also in so doing defeated once and for all the evil powers that were opposed to God and his good order, the powers of sin and death. Our New Testament reading earlier is from the second chapter of Colossians. There's a, um, there's a reference in Colossians 2. Um, just after um, the, the assurance of, of pardon that we heard earlier, when it's, when, where Paul says this, he disarmed, he's talking about the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing in over them in him, that means in Christ. Did you hear what he's saying? That Jesus Christ defeated the powers and the principalities of this world that are opposed to God. His ascension proves it. That's what Paul is saying. His ascension proves it. And you know what that means for us? That means we don't have to fight. The war is over. Imagine if, imagine if President-elect Washington were still treated as General Washington and people showed up from the militia with guns and, and, and weapons ready to fight. What would he look at them and say? My friends, the war is over. Put away your weapons. Right? Sometimes Christians approach this world um, with a fight mentality as if, as if this world is filled with enemies to be vanquished. The theologian Gregory Thompson calls this a domination mentality. And the dominant metaphor in a domination mentality is military, right? The, 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 the culture is engaged with a posture of aggression. Domination mentality seeks power, often through politics, um, as a means to defeat enemies. And so what do we do? Well, we outlaw certain behavior and we enforce morality by fiat and we punish or shame wrongdoers. 
domination mentality believes that culture is evil and must be purged and that cultural products are tainted with sin. And so we boycott and we picket and we rage. Domination mentality sees neighbors with suspicion as adversaries to be beaten rather than people made in the image of God to be loved. And it moves against the world in antagonism, always on the lookout for an enemy to fight. Whether it's the liberals or the public schools or the entertainment industry or the media or the government or the universities or other faiths or sometimes even people within our own faith tradition. So since I've been at Trinity, we have been picketed twice on Sunday mornings during the middle of our service by a so-called Christian group that is frustrated with us because we're not strident enough on certain social issues. Uh, Now, we're a very like-minded church to you, so just imagine if you guys got picketed by another group of people claiming to be Christians because they didn't think you were engaging, you know, a particular social issue in the right way. That's the domination mentality. Every issue is a hill to die on. Always finding an an enemy, always taking umbrage. But friends, listen, Jesus Christ is on the throne. Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling the powers and principalities that are opposed to God and his gospel and his ethic of love and mercy and grace and justice and righteousness are in subjection. They have been defeated. Jesus displayed them publicly as defeated. Evil has been dealt a mortal blow. It's, it's still twitching like a snake with its head cut off. That guy can still bite you, but the death blow has been dealt. On the cross, Jesus Christ crushed the head of the ancient serpent that would oppose us. And that means we don't have to fight. We don't have to fight against anyone or anything. We can disagree. We can lament we can work for justice and mercy and righteousness in the, in the venues where we have influence. More on that later. But we don't have to fight. That's a mentality that's associated with Christ's victory over sin and death. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us here. But he's also not only talking about the fact of Christ's victory, but the scope of the victory. The scope of his reign. So, in verse 10. Um... He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Do you hear what he says? What is the scope of Christ's reign? He's, well, first of all, he's far above the heavens. That's the, the reference to the seat of power, the throne room of God. And when it says above, it doesn't mean spatially above. If you work in a company, the CEO is above the vice presidents who are above the middle managers who are above the you know, new, newly hired workers, and right? But that doesn't mean they're physically over them, right? Well, Christ is right now above the heavens, above all things. And it says his power, reigning and ruling, fills all things. It says that he, he ascended, that he might fill all things. This is a reference to the promise of Jesus to renew all things. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dip into the book of Colossians here. This is Colossians chapter 1. 
um, where Paul has incorporated an ancient hymn or a snippet of an ancient hymn or song into his letter. He says this. He's talking about Jesus. And listen. Listen to the number of times the words all things or something like that gets used. He is the image of the invisible God, God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything might, in, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this is not a sermon in Colossians 1, but that's an important sort of companion text to this. What is Jesus Christ actively ruling over? All things. What is Jesus Christ redeeming to himself and reconciling to God? All things. Now, I I don't want to be pedantic, but at the risk of that, I'll say this. All things doesn't mean some things. All things means all things. All people, all places, all countries, all spheres of influence, all ideas, every arena of activity is currently, right now, as we speak, under the sovereign rule of Jesus who has ascended above the heavens to be with God. Theologian Abraham Kuyper says it like this very memorably, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You hear? Government, mine. Arts and culture, mine. Commerce and business, mine. Family life, mine. Education, mine. The environment, mine. Medicine, philosophy, you get get the point, mine, all of it, under Jesus' rule right now. Okay, so what does that mean? We don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. So if some Christians approach the world as an enemy, as with a fighting mentality, as, 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 as enemies to be defeated... Um, Other Christians see the world as a dangerous enemy and that the church's job is to protect us from an evil influence, right? To to preserve some some fragile way of life that's under threat, right? As if our job is purity from the world rather than mission to the world. Gregory Thompson calls this a fortification mentality. Fortification mentality. The dominant image here is not military, it's the monastery. It's retreat, The world's going to hell in a handbasket, better to withdraw, better to retreat from the fray, better to build an enclave, a fortress of like-minded people to protect ourselves from the polluting influence, away from the madding crowd. Again, the movement here is oppositional, but it's not oppositional in terms of fighting, it's oppositional in terms of running away. But my friends... Jesus is on the throne. 
actively ruling and reigning over everyone and everything and every area of influence, every, every in, in the words, of, again, of Abraham Kuyper, every, every sphere of influence in this world. Every square inch. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear ideas. We don't have to fear culture. We don't have to fear other people who oppose us. We don't have to fear our own doubts our own inability to answer every single question. We don't have to, we don't have to fear um, relationships with people who disagree with us. We don't have to fear anything that, that takes us with our Christian faith into the nitty-gritty places of this world. It can be discerning, yes, we can be wise, we must. Uh, we don't uncritically consume or, 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 or just assent to everything that we see, no. We hold our faith with confidence and firmness, but my friends, we don't have to be afraid. In his, in his, in his letters of correspondence, St. Augustine was writing back and forth with a, with a gentleman um, who was a high-ranking Roman general at the time. Um, and he converted to Christianity. And he was concerned because he thought, well, his Christianity means that he ought to, he ought to sort of get out of this, you know, this evil Roman empire and retreat to a monastery where he could do holy things like, like pray and read the Bible. And he was corresponding with Augustine, and Augustine told him no. No, that's, do, do not leave your job. Do not try to get out of your government and military office. That's your place. That's where God has you. That's your calling. Um, he says this. This is Augustine. In this world, it is necessary that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven suffer temptation among those who are in error and are wicked. We ought not to want to live ahead of time with only the saints and the righteous. His point is this, don't let fear seduce you out of the world. The, the, look, the day is coming when we will live with the saints and the righteous. The day is coming when we will live in a community that is utterly and thoroughly clean and, and, and purified from all sin and all corruption. But that day is not today. So what? What do we do? No fear. No fight. Can't, um, we don't, Jesus is king. We can't do either of those. Well, what do we do? Well, this is what Paul tells us. And, and I'm going to back up now in Ephesians 4 and read verse 1 again. Um, we don't fear. We don't fight. We walk. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk. Walk is a way of saying, carry yourself through life. Right? Don't cower in fear. Don't, you know, aggressively engage. Walk. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, that means we, plural, have a calling. We've, we are a summoned people. We are a directed people. We're not free to decide for ourselves how to orient in this world that God has made. 
We're not free to be driven this way and that by the winds of our fear and our anger. We're summoned. And Christ is our model. And what did Jesus do? Um, It says He descended. This is verse 9. In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He has also descended into lower parts of the earth. This is a reference to Jesus' incarnation. His taking on flesh. His stepping into this world. As as He says in in Philippians chapter 2, renouncing the the privileges of life in in the Godhead and coming to our world. Now, I want you to, to, to think of this for a moment. Think of Jesus' decision to take on flesh and be born into this world. Before Jesus was ever born, with the Father and the Spirit, He knew our sin. He knew our corruption. He knew our evil motives. And He had every reason to fear. But He came to us. And when he did, what did we do? We opposed him. We attacked him. We ridiculed him. We humiliated him. And we killed him. And he had every reason to fight. But he didn't. There's an um, interesting incident that, that, that the Apostle Luke records, or the Gospel writer Luke records in Um, in his gospel, um, that Jesus and his disciples were visiting a city that opposed Jesus, and the disciples came to him and said, Lord, don't you want us to call down fire from heaven and just destroy them? In other words, God, we've we've got access to, like, the best weapons. Let's fight. And Jesus, you know what Jesus said? He did two things. First of all, he rebuked them. No. I mean, the Bible literally says he rebuked them. No, that's not what we do. That's not how we roll. And then it says, he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. That means, that was the moment when he just locked in on the cross and said, that's why I'm here. That's why I came. Now, look, I didn't come to fight against and kill the people who oppose me. I came to die for the people who oppose me. I came to step into a world of corruption and sin and bondage to decay with sacrificial love. And my friends, that's that's the model. That's our model. That's what it means to walk. Not domination, not fortification, incarnation. Following the lead of King Jesus into the world, into the fullness of culture, into our neighborhoods, into the lives of our relational network, into into our job and our industry, into our schools, into this city. Bearing the gospel, bearing the good news that Jesus is restoring and redeeming and reconciling all things to God. With humility, he says in verse 2, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It doesn't sound very angry or, or that's, not, that's not fighting words. And then it goes on to say, I'm eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of 
of peace. In other words, we are peace seekers. Shalom seekers. Seekers of wholeness and fullness and flourishing. So, how do we do this? What does it mean? What does it look like? Um, well, I'm going to, there's probably a hundred thousand ways, but I'm going to give you two. Invite you to reflect and, and um, maybe over lunch today, think of some more. But to me, I, I think of this. Like, okay, where do we spend most of our time? Where do we spend our days? Well, for the vast majority of us, it's two places. It's home and it's work. It's, it's, our, it's our home life and it's our, our vocation in the world. Um, and that's for, for most of us, that's true. And so... Um, home and work give us the platforms to walk in the way that, that Paul is encouraging us here. And so I'm going to refer here to the, the disciplines of hospitality and the discipline of vocation. Uh, first, the way we use our home uh, to carry out a lifestyle of, of hospitality, right? To see our homes not as a retreat from the world. I think that's, we've been sort of taught that in 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 our culture, that our home is the place where we can go, and we can be in our car privately, and we can push the button and the garage door opens, we can drive up in, and we can close it and walk in and never really have to deal with anybody. Like, that's, that's the sanctuary. And I'm just going to encourage you to think, see it just as the opposite. See your home not as a place to run and hide, but as a platform, a venue to push back against the loneliness and the isolation of this world that has been fractured and fragmented by sin. That home is a place for us to bear the welcome of the gospel to our neighbors. It's hospitality. And I use that word a little bit with, um, with caution because some people hear hospitality and they think entertainment. Throwing the perfect party with the best food and the house kept just so and the right music playing in the background to show you're really cool, but you're not going to shove it down anybody's throat, right? And the best wine and... And look, that's fabulous. And if you're throwing that party, let me know if, and I'll be there. But hospitality means, means really so much more. Don't mistake entertainment for hospitality. Hospitality means life together. It means opening the doors of home and life and being with one another. Encouraging, living out the gospel, talking about the gospel in ways that are, that are not weird or artificial, but that actually make sense in the, in, the, in the world that we live. So hospitality, there it is. Um, and then the discipline of vocation, right? Because again, most of us spend the, the better part of five, five or six days a week in a vocation. Um, whether you're in a, in a traditional job or whether you're a student in school, like that's your vocation right now. Um, like this is where we, day in and day out, this is where we use our gifts. This is where we apply the skills that God has given us. This is where we have a chance to, to, to move the needle just a little bit in favor of shalom, in favor of justice and mercy and wholeness and flourishing and peace. Right? Your vocation is the place where you, my friends, have the opportunity to labor, to bring the redemptive purposes of Jesus Christ to bear in the real stuff of this world. This is where faith can get out of the abstract and into the, to the real stuff of life. 
This is where we can seek justice. This is where we can bring a measure of healing. It's, it, your vocation is where you can enable others to learn and grow or disseminate truth and shine a light on corruption or bring order to chaos or comfort to pain or beauty to a blighted world or wisdom to foolishness or in some small way to rein in the simple, sinful impulses of a society that is in bondage to decay and then amplify its virtues. Now, not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something like that. And whether you are a teacher or a professor or an accountant or a contractor or a journalist or an engineer or a parent caring for kids or a student at work learning, whether you're in government or business or the arts or in finance, whether you work in an office or do manual labor or you're traveling on a plane, your vocation is a platform given to you by God to bear the gospel, to seek the common good of this world, and to display the reality of Christ's coming kingdom by living like he is actively already ascended, reigning over all things. Um, close with this. This should be encouraging. You know what this means? This means we don't have to be somewhere else and we don't have to be someone else. There's a lot of... What's the right way to say this? There's, there's a lot of noise in certain pockets of the church and Christianity they're telling us, telling you and me, that we have to do something radical for God. We have to do something spectacular with our faith. Friends, the ascension of Jesus means that that's not really true. Some of us, you know, by God's grace, might have the, the option or the opportunity or the, or the ability to, to do something that appears amazing and radical. And if that's, if that's true, then God bless your soul and, and go for it. But my friends, we don't have to do anything radical because Jesus has already done it. Do you see? Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and is currently reigning over all things. And that means we're, called, we're just called to walk. We're called to faithful presence. In ordinary life, there's, there's, there's ascension into ordinary time. Faithful presence in our ordinary life at work and at home and at school and in relationships. Who we are, where we are, under the rule of King Jesus. Now, that's easy to say and hard to do. So I'm going to ask you all to join with me and let's pray and ask God to help us. Um, God, we, we, we confess that sometimes... Our attitude towards this world is one of opposition. Sometimes we want to fight. And sometimes, Lord, our attitude is one of fear. We just want to escape and not have to deal with stuff and try to somehow preserve what seems good and right to us. But, oh, Lord, give us the courage and the humility um, to, to, to follow King Jesus with lives of incarnational love into the world. Um, Give us the confidence that Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things uh, to do this with humility and gentleness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.